The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, that's our text this morning. It's in Romans chapter 5. If you have a, a Bible, go ahead and get open to there if you haven't. If you uh, need a Bible, the one in the, in the pew front in front of you, we're going to be on page 942. And, and we're talking about sin uh, today. And as we begin to talk about sin, we, we've got to acknowledge that we live in, in a world and a society that is confused about sin. And I mean that both inside and outside the church. Uh, Eugene Peterson, in his little book on the Psalms, he says this about sin and how we're, we sometimes are confused about it, even as, as Christians, right? He says, the, the most persistent manifestation of sin is to obliterate the memory of sin. This is accomplished by blurring our connection with God. We, we avoid a, a detailed awareness of our sin, not by claiming perfection or professing blamelessness, but by disassociating whatever is wrong with us from a sense of God and renaming it as either ignorance or sickness. The act of renaming it, he says, is in fact obfuscation. It's, it's no longer apparent that what is wrong with us has anything to do with God. If what is wrong is a matter of our minds, like ignorance, or our bodies, sickness, then we can do something about what is wrong by applying ourselves to education or medicine without ever having to deal with God. Look what Peterson's saying, right? He, he's saying, as Christians, we, we do this. We don't proclaim perfection, hopefully not. We're not proclaiming to be perfect or, or blameless in any of that, but we don't always call sin, sin all the time either. We rename it. You know, maybe you've heard people say things like, ah, oh, boy, I messed up. Or, you know, I, I fell. We excuse it away. We obscure it away. We reduce it to ignorance or weakness so that we can do something about it ourselves, that's going on inside the church. We look outside the church, we find it too. So society around us, right, is allergic to the concept of, of sin. And it's allergic to the concept of sin because it's allergic to or afraid of proclaiming and standing up for moral absolutes. Now think about it. The only moral absolute in society today is that we must not say there's any moral absolutes. Another way to say it, the, the only sin in society's eyes is to call something sin. It's moral anarchy out there. It is. But look at that, both inside and outside the church. The problem is somewhat the same. We're afraid to call sin, sin. The Bible, on the other hand, is not. The Bible is very honest about this. It's very clear, and it's clear in this passage that you and I, right, ever since Adam, both inside and outside of the church, have a sin problem. We do. And the problem, it runs deep, deeper than any of us can actually fully comprehend. And until we understand something about the depths, until we understand sin as sin, until we really understand what the problem is, we can't really understand the solution. And that's why Paul is talking about that here in Romans 5. Right? Notice the first word of our passage today in, in verse 12. It's the same as the first word from last week. Do you remember it? From, from chapter 5, verse 1. It's therefore. Therefore. See, Paul is, is not all of a sudden dropping a theology bomb on us on sin. All right? He, he, he's not just coming out of thin air. Romans is a letter. It's not a random collection of unrelated subjects. This isn't a new chapter in, in a work on systematic theology where last week the focus was hope. Okay, now turn the page, different topic. Now we're talking about sin. No, it's all related. And it's all in the flow of his logic. 
the flow of a continuous argument. In, in Romans 5, verses 1 through 11, he's been arguing for the hope that we have as believers. He's been arguing that it's, it's secure. It's absolutely secure. You have been justified, remember? And therefore, you have peace with God and access to God. You can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's yours. It's secure. Nothing's going to rattle it. Nothing's going to whittle it away like Christ has died for you, and he's not going to undie for you. Christ has risen for you, and he has no intention of crawling back into the grave. He's risen. It's finished. Finished. That's the theme. That's the glorious argument that leads up to the therefore in Romans 5, verse 12. It's all connected. What Paul has to say in verses 12 through 21 is connected. In other words, this passage in front of us today is intended to bolster the argument that he's already made. He's laboring in this broader section of Romans 5 through 8 to show us the absolute certainty and finality of our salvation. When we get into chapter 6, we looked at this in the, uh, in the assurance element of our liturgy this morning. He's going to talk directly about our union with Christ, that if you trust in Jesus, you do not just have faith in some ethereal sort of way. You don't just have like some new philosophy that you've adopted now and you're trying to live your life in accordance with it. No, Paul's going to say in chapter 6 that you've been united with Christ, united with him. Nothing's going to sever the union. And you can't secede from this union either. That's the overarching theme of Romans 5 through 8. But in order to understand this, in order to understand the glorious, powerful truth of our secure justification and union with Christ, our secure union with him, in order to understand the heights of our salvation, we also have to understand the depths of our salvation. The depths of sin. Or what I'm calling this morning through the title of the sermon, Our Adamic Reality. It's all Adam's fault, right? <laughs> Let me put it to you this way. The, the more you understand and comprehend the bad news, the more you'll understand and comprehend the good news, the gospel. And therefore, the more awestruck you'll be by the person and work of Jesus. The more worshipful you'll be of him. Now, this passage in Romans 5, it's absolutely loaded. All of Romans is, but this one is even more so than ever. So we're going to spend two weeks in this, right? Listen, the, the historicity of Adam is in here, okay? The doctrine of original sin, the necessity of justification, Adam as a type of Christ. We even have to deal with, with, the, with the false argument of universalism here in this text, right? This is a really, really theologically important passage this morning, while the whole passage hangs like curtains behind us, we're going to mostly focus in on verses 12 through 14. And we're going to look, number one, at the instruction that's here in this text. And then number two, some implications from the text. First, the instruction. We're going to walk through the logic here. Paul he is an apostle who is extremely, extremely logical. I know that logical minds drive some of you crazy, right? Um, in a bad way. They drive me crazy in a good way. I love logic. I love reason. And this passage here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, penned by the Apostle Paul, it's logic on fire. Right? And it will fan flames in our own hearts if we understand the implications of it. Look at verse 12 again. The argument is logical. And the logic, though hard to surrender to and maybe even really difficult for us to comprehend, it's not difficult to see. 
Number one, first piece of instruction here. Sin came into the world through one man. Sin came into the world through one man. This is clear. It might seem obvious, but we not to take it for granted. And not to take for granted our apprehension of it. When, when God created the world, Genesis 1.31 says, when he was done, he looked around, he looked at everything that he made, and he said, behold, it is very good. It was perfect. Right? There was no sin. There was no violence or, or war. There were no viruses or, or disease. There was nobody smacking people in, front of, in the face in front of a live audience at the Oscars. Like None of that was going on in the garden. Right? No relational conflict, no suffering, no ethnocentrism, none of it. Everything was as it was, perfectly created to be, and it was very good. But when we look around our lives... When we look around the world today, we would not come to the same conclusion that God does in Genesis 1.31, would we? Everything is not very good. You don't need me to tell you that. We all know it. But the question that we have to wrestle with is, man, what happened? What happened? It's a deep question. It can also take the form of, you know, why are things the way that they are? Why is there so much brokenness? Or if we personalize, why am I so broken? Why am I the way that I am? And the Bible's answer is three letters. Sin. How did it get in? Where did it originate? That's a deeper question still that the Bible answers for us here at a level that we can comprehend, even if it doesn't remove all the deeper questions, right? Sin came into the world through one man. That's the answer we get. Things are not as they are to be. You are not how you are to be. You're not how you're to be because sin came into the world through one man, namely the real historical Adam in Genesis chapter 3. Number two, the second thing that we read here by way of instruction is that death entered the world through sin. Back in the garden in Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to keep it, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, shall, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You know the story. You know the story when Satan showed up, gets in Eve's ear, gets, gets into her mind, specifically says, it's not going to kill you. That's what he says to her. And so they eat. They experienced immediately a spiritual death in a sense and ultimately a physical death. It was a consequence of sin. Paul says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. It's the penalty. And therefore sin was like the doorway through which death came into the world. Without sin there is no death. Death is not, death is not just merely a natural result of living. For too long. No, before sin, everything was very good. No one describes death as very good. No one. There was no death before sin. But death entered into the world through sin because the wages of sin, the consequence of sin, is death. Number three, death spread to everyone because all sinned. Death here is portrayed, I hope you see, not only as a consequence of sin, 
but evidence of the spread of sin. Do you see that? I want you to think for a little bit about the, the pandemic. Not, we're not going to spend very much time thinking about that because we're all tired of thinking about the pandemic. But think for a minute about the pandemic. At the beginning, when everyone was going into lockdowns, right? Why did we all go into lockdowns? Not because we were afraid of like getting the sniffles. We were afraid of death. In a pandemic, death is evidence of the spread of a virus being worthy of called a pandemic. Likewise, the Bible tells us in our world, death is the evidence of the spread of sin. It's like a pandemic virus. Everywhere that you see death, you see it. You see sin. Death entered the world through sin and death spread to everyone because all sinned. Now, those three words right there at the end, because all sinned, are extremely theologically significant. Paul is telling us here, not just that death spread, he's telling us why death spread. Why did death spread? Because all sinned. What does that mean? What what, what does Paul mean? What what does he mean? Does he mean that we are born into this world and we're doing fine until we sin? And as soon as we do, as soon as we commit an individual act of sin, as an individual, we're doomed to die? Is that what he means? Is that what he's saying? Because if it is, all we have to do, folks, is figure out how to stop sinning, right? That's it. That's all we got to do. And our generation's doomed because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But maybe for our kids or our grandkids, we can figure it out. We can figure out when they come into the world as as babies, we can teach them in such a way that they, they never commit an individual act of sin through education, through training. Maybe we can beat this thing. That's not what Paul is saying, and he clarifies that's not what he's saying, beginning in verse 13. And notice how he cuts out here, right? Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And he cuts out. He like interrupts himself, almost as if to say, Are we clear on this right here? This is very important. And I don't want to go on. I don't want to assume that you all understand what I'm talking about. It's like what he's saying here. So he goes on right here to make it clear. Verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now you've got to put your thinking cap on a little bit this morning. You've got to put on your sort of Bible history helmet, you know. And and remember, when when did sin come into the world? When did the law come? Came later, didn't it? came at the time of Moses. And what he's saying here is that before God said, do this, don't do that, through his law, which wasn't given until the time of Moses, before God said, do this, don't do that, he didn't count it as sin when they didn't do this and did do that. He's not counting it as sin yet in that time because he hasn't given the law yet. Or to put it in the words of Romans 4.15, the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Here's what Paul's saying. God wasn't making up the rules as he went along. You ever played a game with somebody like that? It's infuriating, isn't it? I mean, it just drives you nuts. He's not doing that. He's not making up the rules as he goes along. Now, I'm a Seinfeld fan, and I apologize in advance because... You know, unless you're like, I don't know, what's the cutoff? 35? 
and up. You don't get the Seinfeld references. There's a gap. Actually, Seinfeld's becoming cool again because of syndication. And so if you're like below 20, it's cool again and you get the references. But there's this gap between like 20 and 35. If that's it's most of our church, I'm sorry, it, it might not fall on you. But, um, you know, there's this episode where George Costanza gets a new job. And George is one of Jerry's friends, if you're, if you're not familiar, you know. And at this new job, he meets this cleaning lady, right? And um, ends up having a special relationship with her um, in his cubicle. I don't condone that. We're not making light of that. That's, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? But that's what, that's what happened. And he's called into the boss's office, and the boss asks him just very directly about it, very directly, you know? And, and, and here's the funny part, because George responds, and he says, was that wrong? <laughs> you know, he, he says, should I not have done that? I'm going to have to plead ignorance on this one. You know, and he says, if anybody would have told me when I started around here, that sort of thing was frowned upon, you know, I wouldn't have, wouldn't have done that. And the boss looks directly at him, just really directly at him and says, George, you're fired. Right? <laughs> Paul's saying, that's not what was happening. That's not what was going on between the, the time of Adam and Moses. There wasn't a generation after generation of Costanza moments where, where people didn't understand that, that, that nobody, you know, nobody told them that that sort of thing was frowned upon. And they ended up dead. No, it says sin was not counted where there was no law. And yet, verse 14, yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Same time period. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. How was it different from the transgression of Adam? Well, Adam had a specific command. Do not eat from this tree. It was clear. It was articulated. He was told in advance. He's told in advance. That sort of thing is not just frowned upon around here. If you eat it, it'll kill you, right? So... Keep tracking with the argument, right? This is thick. I know this is thick. It's good for you. This is thick. It's meat that we're serving up here this morning, not milk. It's meat. We're going to have to chew a little bit as we make our way through it. But what Paul is pointing out is that between Adam and Moses, in this time before the law was given, everyone still died. Why did everyone still die? It wasn't because they committed individual acts of sin as individuals, even though they did. They absolutely acted in ways that, sure enough, would be super clear and sinful later on, right? Noah got drunk. Abraham lied about Sarah. Esau hated Jacob. Shechem raped Dinah. Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. We can read through the book of Genesis and say, these people clearly committed acts of sin. But sin was not counted before their was the law. Sin was not counted where there was no law, which means they didn't die because of their individual acts of sin. If you want to take that further, bring babies into the equation. This would have been a time far removed from modern medicine where the infant mortality rate was very high. Before a child was old enough to sin in some blatant way, some died. Everyone died. I mean, best of my knowledge, nobody's still alive from that time frame, right? Why? You might say, well, because we're born with a sinful nature. And we are. 
Psalm 51, verse 5, says that we are guilty from birth, sinful from the very womb. And we are. We are born with a sinful nature. That's an important thing for us to understand. It helps us to understand that we aren't just sinful because we sin, but that we sin because we're sinful. That's true, and yet it's the right truth, wrong text. Paul doesn't say here, death spread to all men because all inherited a sinful nature from Adam. It's not what he says. He says, death spread to all men because all sinned. That verb sinned here is what's known in the Greek as the aorist tense. And what that means, in a sense, is that all sinned in a single past action. Now, Starting to get uncomfortable, isn't it? We're not real big fans of that idea. In our Western individualism, we don't like the sound of being responsible for anything besides our own actions, or at the very least, anything besides our own nature. But if you follow Paul's logic, what he's saying is that everyone still died between the garden and the giving of the law because, in some way, Adam's sin, and therefore his guilt, was imputed to us. It was reckoned to them, counted as theirs, counted as ours. His infection, we could say, has spread to all people regardless of our personal actions in nature even. Even though our personal actions in nature condemn us as well. We're all sinful by both nature and choice. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us are sinful from our mother's womb, yes, The wages of sin is death, yes, and yet, Paul says, the problem goes deeper still. Death spread to all men because all sinned. There is a sense here in which we are united in Adam. Paul is saying that that Adam is the head of the human race. This gets us into the the realm of of covenant theology, that God made a covenant with with, with Adam. We are born, so to say, in Adam, united with Adam. To use a fancy theological term, he's our federal head. That word federal comes from the Latin word covenant. Covenant. A federal head, therefore, is a person who, through a covenant relationship, represents or stands in for someone else. We see this elaborated in the rest of the broader passage. Many died through one man's trespass, verse 15. We died through his trespass. Verse 16, again, refers to the result of one man's sin, saying that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Again, because of one man's trespass, verse 17, death reigned through that one man. He doesn't say because of each man's own trespass, death reigned. Or verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. It's clear. It's it's not easier to to fully comprehend, but the logic is clear. One theologian summarizes it for us this way in describing this. He says, bound by the covenant between God and Adam, we are treated as if we actually and personally have done what he as a representative did. 
We're treated like Adam. His guilt, his corruption has been imputed to us, counted as ours. This is the doctrine of original sin. And it's not popular. Our society, even some of us ourselves, we feel a little bit allergic to it, don't we? We're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I like that one. But listen to what it tells us. It tells us our acts of sin are rooted in our, our sinful nature, the nature of sin. We sin because we're sinful, and our sinful nature is rooted even deeper. It's rooted in the fall. And what that means is we can't fix this. We can't. Now remember the point of the broader context in this section of Romans. Paul desires for you to know how entirely secure you are in Christ. That's the overarching point of this section in Romans, right? The point here isn't to beat you down and to point out how rotten some of the things you do are. That's not the point. The point isn't to, to go deeper than that and tell you, hey, those rotten things that you do, man, the problem's even deeper than that. You know, it comes from the filth that's inside of you. You're filthy. It's not that. Or deeper still, to tell you that that filth is a generational filth passed down to you from only God knows where? <laughs> no, the point that Paul is making here, and we'll get to it next week, is that Jesus has come to fix all of this. That's the point. Look at verse 14. It says that Adam, in all the ways that we've just been talking about, was a type of the one to come. In other words, by understanding Adam, by understanding how the imputation of guilt works from way back in the garden, we're able from that to grow in understanding how the imputation of righteousness works. And you might be thinking, I don't know, you know, this imputation of guilt stuff, that doesn't sound fair. <laughs> I mean, like, I wasn't there, I didn't do anything. I don't think I deserve that. I think that's kind of the point. Because you know what else isn't fair in the way that we measure fairness? You know what else you don't deserve at all? The imputation of Christ's righteousness. We'll look at that more next week, but for now, grasp it like this. The more you understand and comprehend the bad news, the more you'll understand and comprehend the good news. And therefore, the more awestruck you'll be by the person and work of Jesus. Now, with that instruction in our hearts and in our minds, let me tease out some implications for us here. Uh, number one, we don't have to be afraid to call sin, sin. All right? This is a, a universal human condition. If it's a universal human condition that we're talking about, and it is, if it's everywhere and true of everyone, we don't have to be afraid to call it what it is. Here's the trajectory I've seen some people take, and I see it outside the church, and I've seen it working in people who've attended here. It might describe you this morning, right? But it starts with a sin that a person really doesn't want to call sin. This could be for lots of reasons. Maybe you like that sin. Maybe there's cultural pressure to stop calling it sin. Maybe you're super close to someone who lives a lifestyle enveloped in that sin or celebrating that sin. Perhaps it's a sin that you've committed in the past. You feel a special kind of 
special kind of shame over. And so you've convinced yourself if you don't call it sin, it's really not as bad as it is. For lots of reasons, you start with a sin that you don't like to call sin. That, in turn, over time, makes you soft on calling sin, sin. And because you're growing soft on sin, you grow soft on the cross. You begin to think that all this substitution business is a bunch of superstitious business. Or worse. But without the need for a substitute, you begin to reduce Jesus down to a nice example to follow, and you cherry-pick passages, especially the ones on the love of God and how he tells us to love other people, and you discard the ones that you don't really like, especially the ones dealing with sin and wrath. And before you know it, you've created a new religion that has really nothing at all to do with the gospel. In fact, it has really little need for the gospel at all. Where there is no understanding of original sin, no understanding of Adam's sin and guilt imputed to us, really there's not much need for the imputation of Christ's righteousness. But brothers and sisters, that is not biblical Christianity. For biblical Christians, we're not ashamed to call sin, sin, because we're not ashamed of the gospel. Being ashamed to call sin, sin, reveals the fact that you're actually ashamed of the gospel. But one of the implications of this passage is that we don't have to be afraid to call sin, sin in ourselves and others around us. We don't have to succumb to the moral anarchy of our day because we know the cure. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Number two, second implication. My sin should not shock me. Write that down somewhere. My sin should not shock me. This is a glorious truth. Right, your sin should not shock you. If original sin is true, and it is, if it's in you because of the fall, if it's in your nature, and it is, it shouldn't shock you to come to the realization, it shouldn't surprise you or drive you to despair to learn, I'm sinful too. God is telling you through this text, this is true of you. Sinful acts, yes. Sinful because you're sinful by nature, yes. And sinful because of the fall and you're being in Adam. Think about this. Even if you could live a perfect life, which you absolutely cannot do, right? Even if you could, apart from Jesus, you would still be counted as sinful, in Adam. You still wouldn't be worthy. Here's why I think that's extremely helpful. When your best doesn't seem good enough, you tell yourself, it's not. <laughs> it never will be. Friends, it never could be. When you sin, that same sin again, and you beat yourself up, Remember, even perfection apart from Jesus would never be enough. It shouldn't shock you when anger or greed or doubt or jealousy or coveting come over you. When idolatry is revealed in your life and you, you begin to realize, oh, oh my goodness, I've been idolizing 
money or control or sex or approval or anything. You don't have to despair. When you rage out at the kids that you love, when you say that thing to your spouse, you you just can't believe that came out of your mouth. When your roommate or your boss ticks you off and rage just boils inside of you because they didn't wash the pan. When lust erupts, you went past that point with your boyfriend that you said you never would, never going to do that. Or you turn to pornography again. When, When the church that has loved you and helped you and prayed for you, when you turn on her in anger, when you turn for the bottle, when you turn for the weed, when you beat yourself to a pulp thinking that you are the worst human being in the whole entire world, listen to me. Your worst self should not shock you. The Bible is telling you here, you're not the only one. You're not weird. You're not bizarre. You're not some freak of creation or a misfit. You're not. Instead, God has told you your nature so you will not ultimately despair when you see these things in your life. You should never be shocked by what you're capable of. God is using it all to show you you can't fix this. God's not expecting you to. But there's one who can. And because of these truths, you can face your edemic reality. And when you've been humbled by that, the healing can begin. Number three, my sin does not shock my God. Write that one down too. (laughs) My sin does not shock my God. He's not looking at you and thinking, oh dear, what are we gonna do with that one? He's not looking at you and getting that exasperated look on your face And walking away and saying, I'm done with you. He knows your nature. In fact, one of the very reasons that your sin should not shock you is precisely because your sin does not shock your God. And some of you right now are starting to think, that sounds like Bumgarner's starting to get soft on sin here. No, right? No. In fact, if you're thinking that way, you're starting to get the point of the text and the line of Paul's argument. Paul knew that some heard, when some heard him talk this way, he knew that some people were going to respond, should we just like keep on sinning then? By no means, he writes in chapter 6, verse 1. We'll get to all that. But right now, what he's hammering home is that we're all in the same boat. We're all in the same predicament. You're not that special when it comes to sin. Your sin does not shock God, which means you can actually return to him. You can actually repent. You can come. He won't turn you away. He hasn't changed the locks. You have access, remember? He's not going to be repulsed. He's not going to lash out in anger. He's not handing out spiritual smackdowns. He already knows your nature. He's not disappointed in you. 
You can bring it to him, dump it with him, confess it to him over and over again. He's not sick of it. He's not sick of you. He sent his son for you. He is not ashamed of you. He loves you. He's sanctifying you. He is washing you clean. You know, I'll never forget when I was in high school, Megan's dad, because we've been together since high school, Megan's dad, my, my father-in-law now, he, uh, he told me once, must have, he must have been outside when I showed up to pick up Megan for a date or something like that, and I rolled up in my 77 Camaro, which was kind of clunky, actually, and, <laughs> but kind of cool. It was black with red interior. I mean, this thing... It had some rust. You know, it was a 305 two-barrel, so let's not get too excited about it, right? But that's what it was, and I pulled up in my 77 Camaro, and I'll never forget, um, her dad came out, and he talked to me, and he said, hey, uh, anytime you start thinking that you need, like, a, a new car, right? Anytime you start just kind of growing dissatisfied with this one, uh, thinking you need to go, like, take out a loan, buy something new, or, or do something like that, he said, anytime you start to think like that, just go outside, get a bucket and a sponge, and wash this one by hand. And he said, there's something about it, something about washing your old used car, even over all the rust spots, you know, by hand, that grows your appreciation for it. Listen to me, in God's eyes, you're a 77 Camaro. You're his 77 Camaro. He's washing you by hand with the water of his word. He's washing you that he might present you one day, Ephesians 5 tells us, to himself in splendor, no spots, no wrinkles, no rust, holy and without blemish. Your sin does not shock your God. And then number four, the sin of others should not shock me. The sin of others should not shock me. This begins by acknowledging the sin in yourself. Okay, if you aren't able to humble yourself and see sin in yourself, you'll never be able to face the sin of others. You'll never, never be able to forgive others, for example, within this body when they sin against you. And guess what? If you haven't been sinned against by somebody in this room, you will. Just wait. It's coming. Fair warning. If you're shocked by your own sin or think that God is shocked by your sin, you'll always be shocked by the sin of others and assume that God likewise is shocked. This is also really important as we witness to those who are far from God. If you are unprepared or unable to face sin in others, you'll never be able to minister to them. You'll either hide from them, build a Christian bubble to avoid them, or cower before them. It starts with your own view of sin in yourself. It starts with you knowing what you're capable of. That given the right combination of pride and power and pressure and privacy, given the right circumstances or a, a different upbringing or different influences and, and formation, you're just as capable, you have just the same nature as anyone else. And if you don't face this reality... Our Adamic reality, the Adamic reality of your own, and then also the Adamic reality of others, you'll be shocked by their sin. 
repulsed by their sin. And therefore, you'll never get close enough, they'll never let you close enough to actually tell them about the cure for sin. I mean, sure, you can do drive-by evangelism on them. Listen, that is, is not going to be very effective. People can tell when you're repulsed by them. Think for a second about a sin that you just personally find repulsive. Aren't you glad that Jesus wasn't repulsed by your sin? And you say, well, listen, mine's different. Romans 5 says it's not. Understanding our idemic reality frees us to engage with those around us who are far from God because it tells us, apart from Jesus, we are absolutely no different. You know who really repulsed Jesus? You're tempted to say no one, but it was actually the Pharisees. They got under his skin, didn't they? Woe to you, he would say to them. Flipping tables and stuff, right? Why? Because they didn't see their need. They didn't understand or comprehend the bad news. And so they didn't understand or comprehend the good news. They weren't awestruck by the fact that God took on human flesh and came for them. They thought, I don't know, man. Seems like we're doing pretty good on our own. Got the temple. Got these sacrifices. You hypocrites, Jesus told them. Church, the more you understand and comprehend the bad news, the more you'll understand and comprehend the good news, and therefore, the more awestruck you'll be by the person and work of Jesus. This Jesus who came for you. This Jesus who says, come to me. This Jesus who invites you to walk with him in the light. You know, John writes in, in 1 John chapter 1, this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. And we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us like a 77 Camaro from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. And his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole wide world. Listen, whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever it was, whatever it is, you can bring it to Jesus today. You can bring it. You don't have to be shocked or ashamed. We don't have to be shocked or ashamed. If you've been walking in darkness, you don't have to. Where sin abounds, 
Grace abounds even more, it says in this text. So this table this morning, before you come, I want to encourage you to just do a little bit of business with God where you're at. Is there any areas where you've been walking in darkness and you haven't taken an opportunity to share that with someone around you? This is a great opportunity. Is there anywhere where you have been sort of starting to minimize sin, go soft on sin a little bit and excuse some sin in your life or in those around you? This is an opportunity to come clean with that because this table is a very vivid and pictorial reminder for us that we don't have to be afraid to call sin, sin. It's a very visual and and pictorial reminder for us that my sin should not shock me. And even more importantly, my sin did not shock my God. He knew exactly everything about it. That's why he sent Jesus. That's why we celebrate this and we are reminded of this every week when we hear the familiar words of institution that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. (laughs) Do this in remembrance of me. You're going to need it. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death for you until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, to this table. And I ask, Lord, that as we partake in these elements, that you would consecrate, set aside this bread and this wine and and use it in a way to help us more fully understand and comprehend the bad news that Jesus came to remedy. With your broken body, In your shed blood, Jesus, you have freed us from the tyranny of posturing. And so would we come, would we not miss an opportunity this morning to confess our sin to you? Would we not miss an opportunity to share it with someone around us or a pastor this morning before we leave? And be reminded of the body of Christ broken for us and the blood of Christ poured out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, in just a minute, I'm going to invite you to come forward to this table. We just go down the outside aisles, and you come. When, nobody's going to come dismiss you, so just come on ahead whenever. As you come forward to these tables, you're going to take a stack of cups. There's cups that are stacked in here, and there's bread in the bottom cup, and there's wine or juice on that top cup that are labeled on the tray. Um, if you have gluten allergies and that sort of thing, This is your spot right here in the middle. This is for you. This part of our service is for those who are united together with Christ. As those who are in Christ, we're no longer in Adam. And so if you are in Christ, not in Adam, come to this table and eat and drink and rejoice. If that's not you, man, we love you. We're so happy that you're here. We want you to to start to grasp some of these truths about sinfulness in your life. We want you to to do that in a way that places your faith in the remedy and trusting in Jesus by faith that you would be in Christ also before you come to this table, lest you proclaim something with your actions that's not actually true of your heart. And so if that's not, if if, if I just described you like, hey, that's not me, just stay where you're at. It's totally, it's totally fine. And we want to pray for you and pray that one day you'll join us at this table in Christ as well. The body of two pillars, believers in Christ. 
those who are in Christ, come now to this table. Eat, drink, rejoice. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.